From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Distance learning is tricky. So is distance discipline. Today, the Elliots of Colorado Springs, their 12-year-old was remote learning, and they found out their son's school was sending a resource officer, a full-fledged sheriff's deputy, to their home. Curtis and Danielle Elliott are African-American, and they were terrified for Isaiah. I think it was a complete overreach of jurisdiction for the school administration to send the police in my home to potentially intimidate him and to criminalize childlike behavior. Then, it's a surprise they made it, but the Nuggets are in the Western Conference Finals, a preview from CPR's Vic Vela. And ensuring that performances of classical music feature more than the usual white suspects. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What does school discipline look like when kids learn from home? Educators are figuring that out as they go. Yet another adaptation the pandemic has thrust upon them. Today, how this played out for one family in Colorado Springs. Their son's school sent a resource officer, a full-fledged sheriff's deputy, to their home for behavior on camera. Mom was at work. Dad was working from home, but it popped out for a quick errand. From Widefield in Colorado Springs, parents Danielle and Curtis Elliott join us. A note that we'll play some of the deputies' redacted body cam footage, and we do so with the Elliott's blessing. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Absolutely. Your son Isaiah is in the seventh grade. He was attending Grand Mountain School. He was suspended, and you have since pulled him out of the Widefield District. But Danielle, tell me about the first contact you had with Isaiah's school on August 27th. It's only the third day of class. He was in art virtually from home. What'd you hear? Yes, sir. So at approximately 1017, I received an email from his art teacher stating that he had been extremely distracted during class and that he was playing with what she said in her words, she assumed to be a toy gun. Um, Upon receipt of that email, I responded to the art teacher informing her that it was in fact just a toy gun and that I would talk with Isaiah about his disruptive behavior. I think it's important to keep in mind my child does have a medically diagnosed ADHD and the school is very well of that, particularly this teacher as she had him all of last year as well. At 12.06, according to the police reports, they were dispatched to Grand Mountain School. And then at 1.41, I received a call from the vice principal stating that the police were en route to my home. All right. So almost four hours after the initial email, you find out that the the officer is going to make a welfare check. What what went through your mind at that point? I was very terrified and um, for my child. I then contacted my husband to ensure that he was home. And after that, I immediately called my son to tell him to lock the doors, not open the door. The police were en route, stay away from the windows, put his toy gun away, and go downstairs in the basement until his father got home. Due to the cultural climate and police brutality and the racial divide right now, this is a very um, real reality and fear for a lot of Americans right now. I'd like to explore that just a little further. You are African-American, so help us understand what your fears were. My fears were that the way this was presented to the officers were that it was an armed young African-American who had a potential gun in the home. 
They also came with a preconceived notion that my son was a troublemaker due to his ADHD. In the body um, cam footage, you can hear the principal um, calling my son a goofball. And when the police arrived, they said they understood that he had been in some trouble in the past. The school told me that you you like to goof around a lot and that you're kind of, you know, you and your friends kind of goof around and stuff like that, right? There's nothing wrong with that, man. That's great. It's good to build relationships where you're comfortable with people like that, okay? But you can't let that carry over into the educational setting, okay? Because that can get you in a lot of trouble. So anytime an officer is dispatched to a possible gun situation, they don't get the full story or the full picture. They just hear young armed African-American, possible troublemaker, and my son looks a lot older than 12. So that for me was terrifying in today's cultural climate. I wonder if you thought maybe specifically even of Tamir Rice, the young man who who was killed by an officer. He had, Tamir Rice, uh, a, a toy gun. Absolutely. That was my very first thought as they were the same age, as they were very similar circumstances. Um, And like I said, that's definitely a very real reality and fear for a lot of Americans right now in trying to raise African-American children in this cultural climate of racial divide and police brutality. So that was definitely something that crossed my mind that day. So you hear that they are going to make a welfare check. That is, an officer is going to show up at your home. Uh, In this case, Isaiah was home with a friend. They were both distance learning, and the two of you were away working. What did you do next, Danielle? I immediately called my husband and informed him of what was going on and that they were on their way, and then I will let him speak on what his next reaction and what his next steps were. Yeah, tell me about that call, Curtis. Well, after I received the news from my wife, um, started to rush to get home from work, and my initial thought was also a fear, thinking that the police were going to storm in, thinking my son had a real gun. So I called 911 and alerted the dispatch of the situation and reassured them that it was just a toy so that, you know, the police wouldn't overreact if they were to get to the home before I did. Oh, this was an anticipatory call that you hoped would reach the officers before they arrived at your house, huh? Absolutely. And you rushed to get there. Tell me what happened next. So after I arrived home, I checked on Isaiah and his friend, made sure that they were okay, first of all. Um, And then I reached out to the police again to see what the next steps were. Um, I was told that they would follow up and get back to me. And then I'd say an hour, hour and a half later is when they finally showed up to the house. And what was that interchange like? Well, When they initially arrived, they said that their purpose for being there was to investigate and make sure that my son didn't have a real gun. So I spoke to them. They briefly explained to Isaiah the importance of not getting distracted while learning and that a toy gun wasn't appropriate during the online class environment. And sir, if I may interject. Yeah, go ahead, Danielle. The police, the initial conversation when they arrived at the house, I was on speakerphone the whole time listening in. They had these conversations about not getting distracted and threatening to press charges all before even verifying whether or not it was a toy gun, which further leads me to believe that they knew it was a toy prior to even arriving. So once we're done talking, I'll have you show that to us so we can verify what it is and go from there, okay? 
That is, if you think it were truly a question of safety, your child's, your family's, or the officer's safety itself, that that would have been the first thing they would have tried to establish. In a realistic world, yes. The district uh, indeed says that they intervened because they were concerned for safety. You doubt that? Beyond the shadow of a doubt. um, At no point did they feel as if my son's life was in danger or that this was a safety concern. Uh, If they ever felt that, I believe they would have called me immediately. I believe they would not have procrastinated and had the cops arrive four and a half hours later. And also at one point during that body cam footage, the deputy tells the vice principal that there were no criminal actions committed that negated to pressing criminal charges. However, when they arrived at my home, they said on multiple occasions to my son that they could press charges for interference with an educational institution and that if anything similar like this were to ever occur in the future, he would be facing charges. Technically, we could push the interference with the educational institution. Okay. You're a young man. How old are you? 13? 12. 12? Okay. I don't want to see you get a criminal charge for something silly. The whole ordeal and experience was very nerve-wracking and frustrating for me because they kept repeating that they could press charges on him. So in my head, I, the whole time I'm thinking that my son's either one going to go to jail or two have criminal charges pressed against him. So my goal at this, that point was just to comply show them that it was a toy and get them out of there and fear for my child and and for myself. And you're in the military. Danielle, what do you do for a living? I'm a defense federal contractor for the Air Force. And so both of you are in a situation I know that a lot of parents can relate to right now, which is you have to balance your work life with the realities of distance learning for your kiddo. Yes, sir. So there was no, no specific guidelines or instructions from the school district on how we were to navigate and help Isaiah navigate through his education online. It was even more difficult and frustrating because my son has special needs. He does have ADHD, he has a 504 learning plan. And so not to have any type of assistance from the school while he's doing class online was very disheartening. Well, Danielle, that makes me wonder if you had heard anything from the school district about what discipline would look like. No, sir. At no point in time during any of the policy that we received or the guidance we received, did we ever see anything differentiating the in-class environment to the e-learning environment. Did it occur to you that discipline might look like an officer showing up at your home? Absolutely not. Not for something as innocent as a child playing with a toy in the privacy of his own home, in which, like I said, there was never an imminent threat and there was never a perceived danger um, for my child or for anyone else for that matter. Do you think that Isaiah did anything wrong? Is there a lesson for him in any of this? Sir, I absolutely do not believe Isaiah did anything wrong. The fact that he has ADHD and the school is well aware of that, um, and the fact that the whole diagnosis in itself is becoming easily distracted, not being able to sit still, not being able to focus for long periods of time, the fact that He was fiddling with something that was in the room around him, particularly this toy on that day. That's not unnormal behavior for Isaiah. That's just the typical symptom of this disease. Him playing with a toy in the comfort of his own home, the privacy of his own home, 
I think it was a complete overreach of jurisdiction for the school administration to send the police in my home to potentially intimidate him and to criminalize childlike behavior. And one thing that I want to make very clear is that in the video that was released, my child is the one on the left. He is not the child on the right that seen holding the gun in the air. Yeah, let me just say, Isaiah was at your home with a friend who attends the same school, was also virtually learning, but in a different class. And it's your contention that it was that other child raising the gun, which has been an image that has also circulated. Is that right, Daniel? Absolutely. Do you think Isaiah knows the difference between what it would be to bring a toy gun to school, like actual bricks and mortar school, versus having it at home? Absolutely. He would know the difference. Um, That guidance has been clear. We have spoken with Isaiah on multiple occasions on what's appropriate in the school setting. Um, However, I'm almost in my 30s and I didn't even realize that having a toy gun in the home would ever even come to something as insane as that. So for me to expect a 12-year-old child to who's adapting to this learning environment, for him to know better than to do something like that, to me, it was just, it's insane. It's interesting. You used the word privacy a little earlier, the privacy of your home. Um, But it's also true that, like, I think the students were told they could never cover their cameras or turn their screens off uh, because of attendance issues. Do you think to some extent that that privacy is reduced in this environment or what? It's definitely reduced because we're allowing these educators into our private lives and we're allowing them to view our our everyday lives. It's definitely not an in-school learning environment to where it's a controlled environment, to where the expectation is set on what is allowed and what is not. So again, alluding to what my husband said, how can you enforce a policy that has yet to be written? How can you enforce a policy that has yet to even been discussed? I would also add that you need to inform people if you're recording their everyday lives and the privacy of their their home. So that wasn't done as well. Yeah, Curtis, I'm glad you brought that up. So the, the point is there was a recording being made of class that day, and that's not something you ever gave permission for, correct? Correct. I didn't give permission. My wife didn't give permission. And frankly, no other parents in the district gave permission. They admitted that they did not ask for parental consent, that they were trying something new. My guests are Curtis and Danielle Elliott of Colorado Springs. Last month, just days into remote learning, their son's school sent a resource officer and a second deputy to their home. Mom was at work. Dad was working from home, but had popped out for a quick errand. And 12-year-old Isaiah was remote learning in an art class at Grand Mountain School when the Elliotts say Isaiah's friend was playing with a toy gun, which appeared on screen. You can see a picture of the toy at CPR.org with its lime green muzzle. It says zombie hunter on the side. So I want to share just a few things that we're hearing from the other parties in this case. The El Paso County Sheriff, which sent the deputy, the school resource officer, posted this on their Facebook page that the office received a report from the school due to a concern for the welfare of the students present during the incident. Uh, That is to say, Isaiah and presumably his friend. We were told by the school the teacher did not know if the weapon was real or not. As we should, we investigated the situation to ensure the safety of the students. 
Our SRO, our deputy, made contact with the parents and children, then held a discussion with all parties. No one was charged with a crime. That stands in some contrast uh, to how you see the events, uh, for sure, because you think that there was really a lot less doubt about it being a toy gun. I think what I am most eager to read you is a statement that we got from the school district just before recording this interview, and I'd really like your reaction to it. Here it goes. Our policies and practices have been developed around in-person learning. However, we are currently reviewing those for appropriate application to distance learning. We, like many school districts, have been faced with several challenges in such a short period of time that we have been reacting instead of reflecting. We realize that we are living and educating in a different world. We cannot comment on the specific incident due to privacy laws. We regret the inadvertent fear caused for the family, and we empathize with them. Sir, I find that statement to almost be offensive due to the timing of it. Um, I think it's important to note that that Thursday, the 27th, that Friday, the 28th, and that following Monday, we had multiple conversations with both the vice principal, the principal, the assistant superintendent, the superintendent, the legal team, and the technology department regarding what our concerns were about the way the situation was handled, about the communication um, or their lack of, about our concerns about potentially putting my son's life in jeopardy. And the fact that the district did not reach out until two weeks later, once this went viral, um, to me just tells me that they're doing damage control at this point. What would you like to hear from the school? I would like to see at the very minimum, my son issued the sincerest form of public apology. I would like to see not only the administrators and the staff members held accountable, but also the two deputies that arrived at my house for their lack of professionalism, for their intimidating factors um, in, in, in speaking with my son after admitting to the vice principal that there were no criminal actions taken. I would like to see policies implemented and changed to ensure this does not happen to another family again. And I would like to see change on a global level. Many children are being criminalized for childlike behavior for things that children do. And to hold children to the same standard as an adult, to me, is completely insane because they are, in fact, just children. Now, when you mention children getting charges and informational files and disciplinary records before the age of 18, these are things that follow them and can potentially impact the success of their future as far as college admissions, as far as military admissions, background checks, and, you know, not even taking into account the mental toll that this has on children, you know, for them to be told who they are um, before they can even figure out who they become. That's detrimental. How, how do you think this has impacted Isaiah? It's impacted him mentally. This was his first interaction with law enforcement at 12 years old. So um, it was a very frightening experience for him. Um, he was definitely terrified as far as the educational aspect of it. Like I said, it's already hard enough on children as is trying to adapt to this new e-learning environment during the pandemic. But then to throw in the fact that he has ADHD, a learning disability, and then be deprived of 
teacher instruction, that places the burden on us as working parents to try to teach these materials to him. And I think I speak for every parent across the world when I say what they teach children now is completely different than what we learned growing up. We weren't provided any type of answer keys. We weren't provided any type of instruction. What we were provided was a 20-page packet on um, information that they wanted him to work on throughout the duration of the suspension, and that was it. I think that my conversations with Isaiah, um, it's pretty disheartening to him. He feels like he's a burden. His love for learning is diminishing. And those are things that we need to fix. We need an apology and we need a school and a school administration and teachers that care and that can help him and provide resources. I wonder if you have thought about how difficult this is on the school's end. I mean, they're trying to figure this out in real time, kind of fly the plane as they're building it and that, you know, maybe there would be a misstep or two. What, what do you think of that view? Yes. Yeah, so going in, we knew there would be growing pains. I, I want to make clear that we do respect teachers as a profession. We do respect law enforcement as a profession and we knew there would be growing pains. However, like I mentioned earlier, for them to enforce a policy that has yet to be written was insane. And, you know, it it wasn't fair. And I I understand we're in uncharted territories, but that's definitely not something that Isaiah should have been the victim of. He shouldn't have to have had a five-day suspension on his record. He shouldn't have had to have the cops called on him. He shouldn't have to have an informational file down at the police station, because these are things that can affect him later on in life. Um, Again, going back to the cultural climate and police brutality and, and, you know, the way of the world right now, Oftentimes when things happen, society victimizes um, or criminalizes uh, victims. And God forbid something happened to my son later on down the road. I would hate for this to be the very thing that prevents him from getting justice. Or I would hate for somebody to paint the narrative that my son was some sort of thug and brought a gun to school and threatened to shoot it up or something like that, because that was never the case. I want to thank you both for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Danielle and Curtis Elliott of Colorado Springs, they've pulled their 12-year-old son out of the Widefield School District for violating their privacy, their sense of safety, and for failing to support their son's learning differences. Both the El Paso County Sheriff's Office and the school district issued statements, which you heard earlier. The district declined an interview. Ali Budner produced this segment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News wants to help voters set the agenda in this election year. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and we're shaping our coverage of the 2020 election with your help. What do you want candidates to address as they compete for your vote? And how has the pandemic changed or solidified your political opinions? Fill out a short survey online about what matters to you this election year. Find the survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Denver Nuggets play in the Western Conference Finals tonight for the first time since 2009, and they've gotten there the hard way, to say the least. Denver has overcome three games to one deficits in back-to-back playoff series, becoming the first team in NBA history to do that. CPR's Vic Vela is not exactly shy about his Nuggets fandom, and so he's here to talk with us about finals basketball. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're clearly alive, but I was worried about you reading your <laughs> your tweets during the Clippers series. 
Oh man, I'm just <laughs> getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Like every single play, you remember Sanford and Son, the old TV show? Oh, sure. Like every single play, I felt like Fred Sanford faking a heart attack uh, and that this was going to be the one that takes me. It was just so intense. And, you know, like my phone measures the steps I take every day. And <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding you. During Tuesday's game, I paced more than three miles in my living room okay um it was just ridiculous but dude like these games are so much fun to watch and 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 the nuggets are just super exciting and you're getting your steps in just some background everyone (laughs) vic vic was born and raised in longmont he's been a nuggets fan since he can remember and uh i gotta say that's a long time to root for a team that hasn't had a lot of success vic Gosh, uh, you know, I had a story that aired uh, this morning on CPR. You could find it at CPR.org. It's a commentary, and I was talking about that. Um, I actually dressed up um, back in 1985, while all my other friends were dressed as the karate kid for <laughs> Halloween. Um, I actually dressed up as Doug Moe, and Doug Moe, of course, was the legendary Nuggets coach back in the day, this foul-mouthed, disheveled old man who who led the Nuggets teams to uh, success in the 1980s. And those teams were a big deal to me. Um, you know, Alex English, uh, one of the Nuggets all-time greats, putting up so many points. And I wore those uh, sweet Denver Rainbow Skyline jerseys yeah. before they were before they were throwbacks. And and, you know, you compare Denver, the Denver Nuggets, Ryan, to other Colorado sports teams like the Broncos and Avalanche have won championships. Um, the Rockies have been to the World Series. But the Nuggets rarely make it this far. They've they've never even played for a title. So uh, there is this kind of sense of dread that's built in as a long-suffering Nuggets fan. But there's also hope and love and adoration because they're your team and, and you grew up with them. I have to say, I just went over to CPR.org to look up your essay. And I was desperately hoping for a photo of you dressed as Doug Moe. But I, <laughs> no payoff. You don't have a photo we can tweet, do you? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be talking to my parents this weekend. So hopefully they okay. can pick one up. What is it about this year's Nuggets that has led them to where they are now? I just think, you know what? I think it's because they play so well together and, and they just believe in each other. And and you might be saying, okay, well, don't most NBA teams feel that way? Well, right. not exactly. I mean, look at their last opponent, the, the Los Angeles Clippers. Their best players only started playing together this year. Um, whereas the Nuggets have grown up together, like the, Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, who are superstars on this team, were drafted by the Nuggets when they were young. And so they've had some time to grow with each other. And and anyone who's really played organized sports at any level will tell you that uh, experienced teams are kind of like a marriage when you can kind of finish your partner's sentences mm. be- because you know them so well. And that matters. And, and I think also, Ryan, Michael Malone, uh, the Nuggets head coach, uh, gosh, the job he's done since coming to Denver five years ago, it's really impressive. And Denver's basketball culture before his arrival was really down in the dumps. They had some very bad years. And he's brought class back to the organization. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and CPR's Vic Vela joins us with a reflection now on the Nuggets. 
and their surprise place in basketball at the moment. You mentioned head coach Mike Malone. Even though the Nuggets are making headlines for their play, you know, he's been very vocal about making sure the focus stays as well on issues related to racial justice. Uh, Why do you think that's been a, a focal point for him? That's just been very important for him and really for the NBA at large. So back in March, the NBA had to stop play because of the pandemic. And and even before they resumed play in July, coaches and players talked about how they're they're not going to let games starting up again take away from that focus on racial justice that we've seen this summer. And Malone has really been a leader in that. He and his players marched during the protests this summer in Denver. Malone is a white guy who's just often talking about the injustices that people of color face, uh, just as often as he's talking about his own team. In just the last few seconds, Vic Vela, uh, the Nuggets play the Lakers, a guy named LeBron James. Uh, the the <laughs> Lakers have won a ton of championships in L.A. What do you think of the Nuggets' chances in about 30 seconds? This Nuggets team is so hard to figure out. I have no idea what to expect, but I think more importantly... I think Coloradans can appreciate what they've done and the joy they've brought. And during a time of year where a lot of people are suffering and it's just nice to feel good about something again, right? Thanks for sharing that. It's just lovely, Vic. All right. Take care. Thanks. Go Nuggets. CPR's Vic Vela. The Nuggets play the Lakers tonight starting at 7 on TNT. Okay, what do the following have in common? Ski resort towns like Aspen, the western Colorado city of Grand Junction, and the archaeological hub of Cortez. They all have the same representative in Congress, and this fall voters there will choose a new representative. It can be hard to find consensus in this diverse district, and no one knows that better than the people who've represented it in the past, CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Ben Nighthorse Campbell wore out several pairs of shoes campaigning in the 3rd Congressional District in the 80s. He held the seat as a Democrat for four years before running for Senate and switching parties. He thinks he was able to understand this diverse district because of his own experiences before running for office. He was a rancher, teacher, military police officer. I think that range of skills that I went through myself gave me the ability to understand and listen and try to represent a large range of people in a third CD. Across the board, the people that have run in the district say the biggest challenge is its size, encompassing almost half the state, the western slope through the San Luis Valley and into Pueblo. This has always been a little bit of a difficult district to represent, I think, because you have a diverse uh, agenda. Nighthorse Campbell says you can't ignore the district's Democratic strongholds like Steamboat Springs, just like you can't ignore its conservative stretches in the West. Sure, people will disagree. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go talk to them or deal with them. And I used to go, I used to go visit with the ones I knew weren't going to endorse me, but I knew that there was some in there that might kind of break ranks and support me individually if they thought I wasn't too much of a threat. He says voters in this district do not want a rubber stamp for the far left or the far right. The largest voting bloc here is unaffiliated voters. And while it leans conservative, Democrats do have a chance, especially if they focus on local concerns. Democrat Diane Mitch Bush is taking a page from this political playbook. 
She held a virtual roundtable on ranching last week and highlighted her bipartisan work at the Statehouse. She says she had to fight her leaders on issues like water. And so I was on a lot of Republican bills and they said, well, you know, you're on an awful lot of Republican bills. That was when I was a freshman. I said, well, I have to be, um, I have to represent my constituents. In Congress, that could also mean butting heads with members of the Colorado delegation. Former Republican Representative Scott McGinnis says those were some of his hardest fights because much of the district feels like Denver and D.C. don't listen. Everyone pretty well feels we get the short end of the stick on transportation. We get the short end of the stick on school funding. We get the short, we get the short end of the stick, period, out here. That's why he thinks whoever is elected will have to be noisy and strong. That's what he likes about Republican candidate Lauren Boebert. Lauren's got a lot of spunk, and I'll tell you, that's a real asset when you run for one in a campaign. But even more important, that kind of energy level is going to be critical for her success in the U.S. Congress. But before either of these candidates make it to Congress, they have to navigate a campaign trail that's difficult in the best of times. You know, when there's not a pandemic that makes rallies and door knocking, well, tricky. Sal Pace was district manager for the last Democrat to hold the seat, Representative John Salazar, and Pace ran for the seat and lost in 2012. He says to have a fighting chance, you have to meet with voters. The events might look different, but I I certainly think candidates need to get out to all the areas of the district. If nothing else, to escape the echo chamber of their own party. Mitch Bush is focused on the virtual for the time being, but Boebert has been hitting the campaign trail. And she's targeting people who don't usually go to the polls, but were energized by Trump's run and who she credits with her primary success. Those forgotten voters who someone else reached out to in 2016 and said, you forgotten voters are forgotten no more, they showed up again. And they're going to show up even bigger in November. Both women will also have to lean on ad buys in a district that encompasses four TV markets, which means money. Mitch Bush went into the general election with an advantage there, but Boebert's growing national profile is expected to help make up the difference. McInnes says whatever the outcome, whoever wins will have a fantastic time representing the district. And uh, I'm just going to say work hard. The people appreciate they may not agree with you on an issue, but if you work hard, they'll know it, they'll appreciate it, and you'll feel honored. You'll really feel honored to uh, serve them. Or as Senator Nighthorse Campbell put it, Remember to dance with the one that brought you, in this case, the varied voters of the district. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Coloradans are getting their blue books in the mail, you know, the voter guides that the state puts out, and they are mighty thick this year. Actual ballots follow next month. And you may notice that some of the wording in the ballot measures is in all caps. That's something John Weber of Littleton asked about through Colorado Wonders heading into last year's election. All the ballot measures are written in completely uppercase characters. And that's actually much harder to read than the mixed case. In social media, they'd call that shouting. And it's not all caps everywhere on the ballot. No, the members up for uh, election, they're in mixed case like you'd expect. From everything we've been taught, the mixed case makes it much easier to read. In fact, this uppercase just makes it almost discourages anybody from reading the ballot measures. Weber is right. According to typographers, we simply read more lowercase text, so we're used to it. And variation helps our brain with word recognition. So why on earth would all caps appear on a ballot, the cornerstone of democracy? And why only sometimes? Secretary, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on. 
For answers, John and I rang up Colorado's Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold. Why is this done? Believe it or not, it's mandated by the Colorado Constitution. So an article of the Constitution, commonly known as the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR for short, generally requires that the state of Colorado and all political subdivisions submit tax and debt increases to voters. And a section of TABOR requires that those ballot issues appear on the ballot in uppercase letters. It is written in the TABOR, which is in the state Constitution, that any tax increases Uh, be asked in all caps, you're saying? That's exactly right. Section 3C of Tabor. Uh, So the drafters of Tabor must have had the opposite inclination, uh, thinking that if something's in caps, uh, it grabs people's attention. Well, now, of course, the creators of Tabor, Jenna Griswold, were not necessarily big fans of taxation. Uh, Is it possible that what they wanted to do was dissuade people from voting yes on tax increases? Uh, well, I, I won't try to guess what they were thinking when drafting. Okay, understandably, Secretary Griswold doesn't want to speculate. So I reached someone who wouldn't have to. This is the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, and the purpose of that and the mailed election notices and the capitalization of the ballot title is simply to alert people. Douglas Bruce is considered the father of Tabor, which passed in 1992. CPR even made a podcast about him and the enormous influence he's had on the state. Indeed, Bruce wanted tax increases to stand out to voters. To draw to their attention. This is not just an ordinary, you know, issue about shall we prevent uh, spring hunting of bears or, you know, shall we rename a park from Smith to Jones or something. This is about the government taking a bigger share of our money rather than just the normal growth rate that they get automatically. That's why it's capitalized. It's an alert simply to tell people that. Do you want your children to have to repay debt that they don't get to vote on? Do you want to have the government taking a bigger share of your money through this tax increase of a specific dollar amount? That's why it's capitalized as a means of grabbing people's attention, frankly. Was there any thought back then that something that was capitalized, not it not only might it draw more attention, was there some sense that perhaps people would be less likely to vote for something? Of course. To... Of course. This is, the Tabor Amendment is hostile to tax increases. It doesn't prohibit them, but it says people need to be warned. They have a warning when they sign a petition out in front of Walmart, and that's a warning in red ink and capital letters. You know, be sure that you read this before you sign it and so forth. Well, this is, in effect, saying be sure you read this and are aware of the nature of it before you sign it. And that's why we also require in the Constitution that the title starts with certain language. In the case of a tax rate increase or a new tax, shall state taxes be increased $100 million annually or whatever the number is. Douglas Bruce there. And John, what do you make of what you've heard? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but, uh, you know, the law is the law, and I guess you have to comply with that. 
John Weber of Littleton there. He asked his question through Colorado Wonders in the last election go-round, and it holds true for this year's blue books and ballots. Ballots, by the way, hit the mail October 9th. We invite you to ask us anything about the state. We'll try to find the answer. Head over to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders to share what puzzles you about the centennial state. And while we're inviting you to stuff, join us Tuesday evening for what's sure to be an engaging discussion about whiteness. This is part of Turn the Page, our reading group. We've chosen a book called The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter. Professor Painter used to lead the African-American Studies Department at Princeton. And here's the deal. You don't have to read the book to benefit from the discussion. So join us for this virtual event Tuesday evening. You'll have an opportunity to ask the author questions or just sit back, listen, and learn. Find details at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's CPR.org slash turn the page. Okay, be right back with the struggle to diversify the classical music scene. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Together, we've been transitioning to a new normal, and we all have a lot of questions. Your support means you, your friends, and your neighbors will continue to have access to CPR's trustworthy coverage of today's stories. Your membership ensures that this valuable community resource for news and music remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. There are many ways to give, including monthly, as an Evergreen member. Thank you for your support at CPR.org. Clarinetist Anthony McGill posted his performance of America the Beautiful to Facebook, and people took notice of his unusual rendition. Let's listen. there in a minor key, and in the video, Anthony McGill kneels. Well, that went viral and inspired other artists to protest racial injustice collectively with the hashtag Take Two Knees. McGill is the first black principal player in the New York Philharmonic, and he performs Sunday for the Denver Friends of Chamber Music, then joins in a conversation about music and social justice with the Spirituals Project at the University of Denver. We asked him about this moment in time for classical music. It's an interesting thing in the classical music community because there are so many people that support equality, equity, all of these things. So many people within the community understand all of that. I think the issues that we're facing today is 
how do things not change? In a way, that means we have to examine how they got to the point that they are right now. So especially regarding the lack of representation of musicians of color on stages, especially within our orchestras, but also within uh, the composers that we choose to present in our concerts. So this concept that there is a problem is very important to how kind of insidious this issue is, which is that if you don't see a problem, it doesn't exist, right? So if you don't notice there's a lack of representation, then why would there be a problem? You just think, oh, well, these are the composers we like, and there's no need to explore anything else because this is excellence. This is what excellence is about. This is what greatness is about. And wrapped up in that statement is a whole culture based on excluding people that are different. So first of all is realizing that there is a problem, that there is an issue. And then the second step is to figure out, okay, what are we going to do about this? I didn't know about this. I wasn't aware of it. Of course, you know, people in the Black community, of course, are aware of it. People in other oppressed or forgotten communities are aware of the issue. So that has been our awakening, I think, especially this year, especially this summer for a lot of folks in classical music that, oh, there really is a problem and there's something we can do about it. What is that? That's different for different organizations. Sometimes that can mean who you hire to perform, what works they choose to perform, who you're looking at to join your board, who you're looking at to kind of run different things within your organization. Is that uh, group of people a diverse group of people? And if not, why not? And let's just ask those questions, first of all, and then see where we can go beyond that. And that's actually, I think, where a lot of people are at right now is that they've never really asked the question because they didn't think there was a problem. When it comes to performing works by a diversity of composers, Anthony McGill says it's about being willing to broaden one's view. I've been a part of the same system that everyone else has been a part of. Actually, that's what's really interesting, being a Black man in classical music, is that my repertoire choices have been just as down the line as everybody else's, as classical as ever, meaning um, dead white composers and a few other new composers thrown in there because I like new music and I like supporting just new compositions. So I think organizations and, and folks need to to support new music first and foremost. And then within that, then you learn about, okay, who are the living composers that are from different backgrounds? Who are the female composers? Just asking the question, what kind of representation do we have on our on our series this year or on our season? So I think people don't understand. It's really not about exclusion and it's not about lack of quality. This is the this is the big kicker that people automatically assume that when you're talking about this sort of um, change that you're talking about somehow diminishing the quality of your concerts or the quality of the music. And that's not what it is at all. It's about learning. It's about scholarship. It's about excellence in every way and maybe in a better way, actually. This week, Anthony McGill, again, classical clarinetist, received the prestigious Avery Fisher Prize. It recognizes musicians whose vision and leadership have expanded classical music's reach. I've been involved heavily with music education and believing in arts education for everyone, and especially in underserved populations and communities. And so I'm going to use the 30,000 
portion of the award that was to go to a live celebration to start an endowment through the Juilliard School for the Music Advancement Program. This has 70 kids, and with a diverse group of kids, underserved communities are especially the kids we're trying to reach and giving them conservatory-style, serious, um, intense instruction. Also, instruction guidance in how to be a citizen of the world today and how to use music to affect their lives positively. McGill says performances like the one that will stream this weekend in Denver are important ways to share his perspective. To be able to talk further about what I think is obviously a very, very pressing and important issue regarding race and racial harmony in this country and just basically the American dream of us all just getting along and trying to go through this world together as humans and respecting each other um, for our differences, actually. And to be able to discuss these things is all, for me, all positive. To be able to not only entertain people as they go to concerts or enjoy these beautiful works by these geniuses as well as other people that you haven't discovered yet, you know, is fantastic. Anthony McGill is principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic, the orchestra's first African-American principal player. He performs in a free streaming concert for Denver Friends of Chamber Music, Sunday at 4. This is CPR News.